0: Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Daniel Rachel, who joins me to discuss his book, Some Forgotten Dream. What if the Beatles hadn't split up? Daniel is a brilliant author. I particularly enjoy his books, Isle of Noises, about British songwriters, and Don't Look Back in Anger, which tells the story of Cool Britannia and Britain in the 1990s. In Some Forgotten Dream, Daniel compiles a tracklist for an imagined final album, pulling together unfinished demos, forgotten b-sides, hit solo songs, and arguing that together they form the basis of a lost Beatles masterpiece. This is a really fun and quite daring rewrite of history, which is basically designed to create debate. I had good fun challenging Daniel on some of his song choices. Well, Daniel Rachel, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you very much. I've just been, you've completely and utterly intimidated me with our pre-ramble of you saying you've got 450 Beatle books. (laughs) Guilty,
0: I'm guilty, I'm guilty. It's Um, more
1: books and songs that they recorded officially, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Well, you've now added to that library with your book, Like Some Forgotten Dream, what if the Beatles hadn't split up? Um, And you start the book by saying it's difficult to not fall in love with the Beatles, which is a sentiment I'm sure most of the listeners will relate to. Um, so tell us, first of all, a little bit about how you fell in love with them and how that love led you into writing the book.
1: Well, it is, it's the great platonic love affair, isn't it, the Beatles? All through my life, when I've met people, you get people that like the Beatles, passingly, if that's a word, passingly, and then people that are fans of the Beatles, but they're not fans like of, of other bands. There's something special, isn't there? And you realize that quite quickly. And I think you kind of instinctively get that as a kid because my relationship with them felt like falling in love with them as characters. That seemed as important as anything really, as much as the music in a way. And the character, of course, is within the music. And so there's a, it's, it's both things at the same time. And for me, It was hearing the 1970 Radio 1 story of the Beatles, which I hasten to add. I'm not old enough to have listened to that when it's broadcast. Although, although, just to lay a claim, I was born before, and when I was born, there were still two new Beatle albums to come. One had been recorded already, and one was being recorded. And for, for for all the fans listening to this, who I'm sure know way more about the Beatles than I do, Uh, Like yourself, I was born when they were doing overdubs on Maxwell's Silver Hammer. So you'll (laughs) know exactly when I was born by that. But anyway, my dad had taped on a Grundy quarter inch reel to reel about six of the episodes of the the Radio One story. And he'd also taped the White Album, which I think they played in its entirety, but he edited it. So it hasn't got the links. So I don't know how they did it, unless they played it all. But I discovered this when I was about eight. And I remember having to work out how this machine worked and then discovered, not quite knowing what Beatles story meant. And suddenly you hear all these great voices telling wacky jokes, cut in with all the fab stuff of 63, 64, and it was like, ah, this is just amazing. This is like the best school classroom ever. And you're in the middle of it, or I was, with a pair of headphones. So I always think that's when I fell in love with the Beatles for sure. And then uh, we had a few albums around the house that I wasn't allowed to play. I wasn't allowed to touch the, the the family record player, which was in the posh room. We had a posh front room that was that was set aside for guests. I don't think we ever had any guests, and we never went in the posh room. And the record player was in there. I wasn't allowed to touch it. So they were put on whoever parent or an older brother could put on a side of a record and then I'd have to shout, Mom, I don't want to hear the other side. And all this kind of embarrassment of waiting for, you know, to side by side. And I I think we had Abbey Road, Sergeant Pepper, it was definitely Sergeant Pepper because it was uh, mono with the the psychedelic inner, but it didn't have the cutouts. Uh. Uh, With the Beatles, Hard Day's Night, I think one or two others Mm. and then I then began to get those either by borrowing them from Solihull Public Library where you could loan them for 50p or whatever, scratch the pieces and then slowly began to buy them. That was where The Love Affair began then. Two important because this is books, I think there's three big books for me Mm -hmm. was John's poetry book in his own right Mm. definitely that was the first I love that very hard to get into, isn't it, in a strange way, because uh, of the language, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I had, I got the edition that came out about 98, which was in his own right, and the other one that he did, A Spaniard in the Works, in one. Yes. Uh, and yes. uh, the great John Savage, the writer that I'm sure you know. The, the introduction. Re- did The introduction. So I, I, really, I really enjoyed his, his introduction. And then I started reading the poetry. I was about 14. And as you say, it wasn't that easy to kind of, digest almost and it was quite kind of other and foreign to me Um, but I think as I've got older uh, I've gone back to it and it is as you say it's it's quite unique really I mean you wouldn't have got a Mick Jagger or a (laughs) Pete Townsend poetry book you might have got a Ray Davies one but you know it it, it never happened but it certainly is a it's an interesting kind of artifact that book.
1: Joe what was the program where he reads out the poetry was that on, on a ready steady go
0: that was not only but also with Dudley Moore and Peter Cook um, when he wow. reads out that. And they go to Wimbledon. Him and Norman Rossington, who, of course, is in, is in A Hard Day's Night, they go to Wimbledon yeah. Common yeah, yeah. and they kind of float around Wimbledon Common. And stuff. <laughs> Luckily, that they, they wiped a lot of those, not only but also, but that one survives. Um, so, yeah, that was in the anthology as well. They used some clips of that in the anthology. Well, the big
1: thing... Um... I don't know what year sometime in the early 80s perhaps 84 85 ready steady go we were re- rerun on channel four mm-hmm. and i videoed all the beatles together but for some reason John is within that my compilation video reading the poetry which is why you, right. i don't i don't mistakenly don't know where that but that was a big thing watching right. all all that foot. you know when dusty springfield's like co-presenting and going yeah. behind him playing my record and he's going oh, who are we into the miracles and just saying anything but the dusty record but they're great aren't they and, yeah you know and katherine yeah. mcgowan into being yes. you know interviewing them one by one and them all being cheeky and that yeah, that was a big it. thing is it but the other books was um the ray coleman john lennon book yes i remember being really really upset when i got to the shooting and oh, and right. as you know because reading that as a young kid you just distraught, because although we all know it, don't we? We know what's going to happen, but you can't Mm. help thinking it's not going to happen. It's going to be all right. Something will save him. Go on, please. And it doesn't. Mm. And then you just get choked up every time. I still get choked up when it when you it just does you, doesn't it? And then and then the other major key book was Beatles Complete uh, Vocal Edition. And it was a gold thing, a gold circle with them embossed on the front. And it was basically every single song with the chords. And I was just getting into bands. And I used that book to teach myself how to sing. I couldn't sing in tune. And I literally picked out all the vocal lines on a single strings on the guitar and tried to replicate it with my voice. And I I still do it now. So that book has been with me all my life. I, I adore that book so much.
0: So where did the idea for this book come from?
1: I used to live with a musician called Simon Fowler, who fronted a band called Ocean Colour Scene in the 90s. We grew up together we're best mates, still are. And he's four years older than me. And when we met, when I was 16, we realised we were both nuts on the Beatles together. And so finding a mate who felt the same way as I do, was just magnificent. So I can't ever have think there's been a day in our friendship when for some reason one of the fabs hasn't come up or he hasn't done an impression to make me laugh or we've sung a song i mean whenever their biggest song was they caught the train i don't know if you know that song you're nodding yeah and and even now when he goes out on stage as he did then whether it was glastonbury or royal albert hall That song starts with the E E minor chords. You go, and instead of going, never saw it as the start, you go, you'll never know how much I really (laughs) love you. Which is the dedication at the front of the book. He doesn't know that, actually, but I've dedicated it to Simon because he does that and because I do love him. We shared a fascination. And then when we lived together in our 20s, he started, or we started, as you probably thousands of people have done just going what if the beatles have done give me some truth or yeah. can you imagine if maybe i'm, I'm amazed had been the, the next single and so we'd have these stone chats and just and, and before and then he'd come and go i've just heard early 1970. do you know it we go no what's that and he go oh, you've got to listen or it don't come easy we go right that's on it on what oh let's but imagine there was a record and right. so we so we we played this game, and then we'd bore other people who we found out were Beatles, and go, "What would be on your record?" And so that idea just took flight. And, and in my twenties, I think I was at my my most obsessed with them for sure. I was in a band, mm-hmm. and I was studying Mark Lewison's book to learn how the Beatles did it. You know, the recording book to mm-hmm. learn the tricks of how they recorded what they did. And it was influencing my songwriting and every song I ever wrote, is this as good as Hey Jude? Of course it's not. But that was the aspiration. And I always think any band that tries to sound like the Beatles, at best, you're going to sound like a George song. You don't stand a chance of competing with Paul or John, do you? Not a chance, you know, (laughs) if you can pull off as good as Don't Bother Me, you're going some. But, you know, even that's a hard one you know because oh, yeah. that's a great song mm-hmm. but uh but so anyway that was where the genesis of 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 the book like some forgotten dream came with so when in the last few years when i was had be, stopped being a musician and become an author and i was thinking of ideas to be honest i thought it was a I didn't know if I'd get a deal on it because I, I told my agent about it. I said, she said, what would you do if you could do anything? I said, well, I'd do a book on the Beatles. Well, what though? You know, and I said, well, I, we had, and I explained this crazy game. She goes, oh, I think, a, I don't think she said fab, but in my mind, she did. That's a fab, <laughs> fab gear favourite, pick idea, you know, so, so I was thrilled. And, and then, so, yeah, so that's the genesis of the book, basically, to to relive that that ridiculous fascination that we kind of bore everybody to tears uh, in the pub or whoever we met or harangue them harass them what's your song why that one no way you know and and try and relive that and then and then then the challenge is it's a game and and i and in the introduction it's made clear it's a game and Mm -hmm. you have to be forgiving with the rules of the game because there will always be contradictions and there will always be inconsistency and, you, and I've decided that I had to set up parameters and rules for what made the, the record work like when does when does it start and how far can you go before you say you can't have songs after this given date that's really important and um, and then I mean I think we're going to come on to this in a bit but the the brilliant thing is is discovering how so many of the songs that they recorded on first second third even sometimes later solo albums were songs that the Beatles had had recorded and played with mm. and that was some we know about but others from January 69 those were things of like wow I didn't I hadn't heard that but won't we'll come to that
0: so you um you start the book in the first kind of few chapters by looking at the breakup of the Beatles yeah uh, did your view of that change from when you started writing the book to when you finished writing it?
1: I mean, I have to stress that I, I'm not trying to present or rewrite something that has been done by many other more distinguished writers in, in fantastic and wonderful depth. That but it's important that the scene is set to create what like some forgotten dream requires. But obviously. There's our elements, you know, and there's, and we, I think we all as fans, whether we're new and young or we're from the time, have to ask ourselves what, how and why are our opinions being formed and have they been socially and politically formed because of the times that we come from or, or have been through. And so you can probably immediately guess that I'm. Heading towards Yoko, for example, and that that American documentary. Do you remember that? Is it called Complete Beatles? Was that excited? The one that Malcolm McDowell narrated.
0: Yeah, that's the one. That,
1: yeah. yeah, that was that was a big thing in understanding where they came from. And that doesn't that doesn't paint a, a necessarily a great picture. And Hunter Davis in the official biography doesn't paint a great picture. You know, it's like saying, well, why? Yoko is a very beautiful woman, I think, and a really exciting artist. And she had great status in her own world, coming from a country hmm. that had been bombed, nuclear bombs, you know, atomic bomb. You know, what a heavy background to come from. And then she arrives in New York, arrives in London. But rather than my, if you're asking me personally, rather than say, look to her, I wholeheartedly blame any negative attitude or attributed blame toward Joker on John's door. If anybody split up the band, I would argue from what I can see before me as fact, it's John, without a doubt. John is the one that makes the decision to invite her into that atmosphere where previously people were not allowed. Girlfriends had always been within the band, hadn't they? Mm. In fact, John had always been married, you know. But, but so, so there's that. You asked me, I think, about you know the Alan Klein factor. Did, I, did, does, how does that play into it? Uh, I, it's, uh, these things are really difficult, aren't they? Because mm. we weren't there, mm. and the stories we hear largely are posthumous to the Beatles' life, and people have got agendas and how they tell those stories, and I think. What my purpose within like some forgotten dream is to say there were definitely missed opportunities and there were decisions made that could have gone either way. So then you go back to saying, well, had Brian lived, would that have been averted? Had they gone with beaching as the manager or obviously not the right person, but perhaps there was another person, you know, John went to meet him, didn't he? So he obviously was looking and mm-hmm. had an open minded possibilities could the Eastmans have existed alongside Klein? That seems unlikely, but, mm. it, but it shows that there were possibilities. And I, I don't know, you know, it's a tough question.
0: As you say, you've, you've been in bands and you, you were around Simon and others, etc. Is there an inevitability when you're in a band that sometimes, as time goes on and personal circumstances change, that some bands just, just can't stay together? Do you think the Beatles were an example of
1: that? Yes, of course, you're absolutely right in that. The, the, I mean, bands bicker and they argue that's part of being in a band. Yeah, that that's natural. But I mean, th- I think in terms of offering insights, where perhaps many people haven't been, is that my great advantage in writing this book was listening to 90 hours of what happened in January 69. I've listened to those bootlegs, shall we say, uh, twice over and and dipped in lots of other times. And I think that that gave me the greatest single insight into how the Beatles operated than anything I've ever read, ever seen, ever heard, more than anything. And I understood completely by listening to those rehearsals from, you know, first thing in the morning till early evening, five, six o'clock, and you listen to them playing all day for 20 days. Then you understand how those relationships worked. And what an incredible, incredible period of creativity. In 20 days, they wrote not only all of what became Let It Be, most of Abbey Road and a ton of other songs that, that informs what the album that I'm suggesting is could have been the album that came out after Abbey Road or before Let It Be Or, that's all discussed You know, order mm. sequentially. But that and, and, and all things like the the, row, the, the the row, I mean, that's the tiff. The, it's virtually, it's barely nothing, as you rightly say. Bands have those kind of things all the time. Mm. And then the next day, John and Paul are fine. Mm. Even that afternoon, they're fine. Within 20 minutes, they're fine. And they're collaborating and, and all the talk, even up to the 31st, the day after being on the roof. You know, George is 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 helping writing the, or offering suggestions for the lyrics of the third verse of Let It Be, because Paul hasn't got it yet. They're working and they're, they're laughing, they're joking, they're playing each other's songs, you know, that, that I think that those 20 days are the key to understanding how the Beatles were in, in throughout throughout the rest of the year, because it's the greatest recorded period of time that we as fans can get inside. It's not to say it's the single most important month in their life, but we just don't have access to any anything like that in any other period of their life. We've, we've got nothing to compare it to really on any great scale, unless you've, you're privy to, you know, Abbey Road takes that the, the vast majority of us are not.
0: Mm. So I think what would be good is uh, just to explain a little bit about the setup of the book. So, once you've you gone through that that kind of breakup element that we've just discussed, you then break the album down into four sides: a John side, a Paul side, a George side, and a Ringo side. Uh, and you select six songs per side. So, I thought it would be good if we if we run through the songs. Not every song, maybe, but you can talk a little bit about why you chose some of those songs
1: so the concept of what i call four sides of the beatles is expanding on ideas that they all give and allow yeah giving them all one side each. but at the same time there is that nod to the famous 9th of september 69 uh, meeting mostly attributed to the 8th but i'm I, i'm pretty certain it's the 9th as i think mark Lewison is that there is a 14 track album as well you know, which is gloriously mentioned in that Pete Doggett book, isn't it? Uh, you know, he tells that story where George was in a car and he's compiled a cassette of all the solo Beatle tracks. And you just love that, the image of George sailing along and he's got all of the songs compiled and you just think, what did he put on it? You know, would <laughs> love to have heard that? But there's and, and George does an interview later about saying that's what we've decided. Mm-hmm. We're all, all going to do four each and Ringo will have a couple there is strong evidence to suggest that they may have done a 14 track album, but they they may well have done something a, a, a bit more adventurous, but yeah, the John inclusions. I mean, it's um, instant karma. Had they then agreed, wouldn't that? Can you imagine that? Oh, yeah, yeah. and Ringo. I mean, I find it disturbing those drum rolls on that song. I've never understood it.
0: You'll know more than me, uh, but, I always find it a bit showy. It's a little bit of you know, look what I can do. The magic of Ringo, of course, is that he didn't need to show off because he, you know, he, no, he had everything there. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I do find those those fills a little bit showy and unnecessary. Um, but that's that's the I mean, the power in that and the energy and the yes, you know, it's 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 it might be my favorite John Dylan solo song, maybe. Wow. Have you ever heard the Paul Weller version that he did in about 2000? They did like a tribute to John Lennon night in 2000 and they did um, Noel Gallagher, Johnny Marr, Stereophonics did some stuff. And, and Weller does, he wasn't in the studio, but Weller did, did this performance of Instant Karma with Steve White on, on drums, obviously who was then his regular drummer. Jules Holland's brother was there. It was a very strange band. He's a good organ player, isn't he? That's right. That's correct. Yeah. What did
1: Steve White do for the drum fills? Did he replicate the record or do his own?
0: I, as I recall, it has been a while since I've seen it. Um, he, he, he holds back a little bit, which I think was a wise decision. But the energy that Weller puts into it, he's wearing these sunglasses and <laughs> halfway through, they fall off his face and he just carries on. So, I mean, it's a magnificent song.
1: Yeah, and it was John's idea to have the drum fill in it. Anyway, he, that's what Alan White says, John said, do it. But but you, you just, you see, I can't help thinking, had Ringo done it, there would have been something a bit more, less jarring. I mean, this is the thing you can't help imagining, can you? And um, and the other, oh my God, give me some truth. Hearing, have you heard when John and Paul are rehearsing that? It's in the- incredible!
0: It's incredible because they oh. start they start saying about son of Gary Cooper, don't they? Yes. And all that and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, so- well, I mean that part of me thinks that should be a Lennon McCartney songwriting credit to that. Really,
1: uh, I don't know because it's obvious that they've written the song and at some point there's quite a few indicators of this in January 69 that they've got together at some point after the White Album and met up and, and played each other's tunes because they keep, So as soon as he mentions Give Me Some Truth, John, Paul knows it because he goes, is that the one, Gary Cooper? And, and he sings rap and he can't quite remember it all. So he knows it already. And there's a few examples of that of different songs, but then hearing Paul sing parts of that song and then they and then they're playing off each other. And they're suddenly making suggestions and you go, oh, keep going, keep going. And there's just not enough of it. And and, and if I'm super critical, which in a way you have to be, it's, it's like, instead of class form and playing kind of root notes on the bass, predominantly on that song, there's no way Paul would have approached the song like that. And we don't hear him playing bass, uh, um Twickenham. Mm. But as we know, I mean, Paul's bass playing in 69 is just incredible, isn't it? It's absolutely yeah. incredible. And those melodic lines and you just think how would he have approached give me some truth and, he or, he, and he's already working on the m- melody lines and would he have even sung the top lines that had to go on John's yeah. record without a doubt and it, that would have been a master blaster for sure. God's on there. And, and I just love the idea of of a Beatles record ending. I don't believe in Beatles. I mean the critical thing. It doesn't say the Beatles just Beatles. Yeah. But can you, isn't that that and that would just be wonderful? And there's so, so many self referential tracks, aren't they, in the Beatles story where they talk about their own lyrics or they sing about their own characters? Mm-hmm. So, the idea of John singing about his own the, the band, or is he talking about the people, or is he talking about the myth? I, I go for the idea it's the myth as opposed to the, them as a band continuing.
0: You've also gone for Jealous Guy again, one of my favorite. John's songs, starts off as uh, way back in, in India, of course. Yeah, what, uh, yeah, yeah. What made you affect this one?
1: Exactly as you say, that it's, uh, it's a Beatles song <laughs> in as much as India. And then again, they, they rehearse it over quite a number, two, if not three different days on the road to Marrakesh, it becomes. And, um, and John talking about wanting an Hawaiian guitar that he's got at home that he wants George to play, and then he bring that comes in for the next day. So he's got this concept in his head, and then he describes things that Billy can do when mm-hmm. Billy Preston arrives. As with many of the songs that they're doing, there's a strange thing that they're trying out numbers, which they either haven't got time to finish, rehearse, and they they've also got a TV show to do. And when it's not a TV show, it's a live gonna be a live thing. So they're half wanting to be creative and just as they always are always do, which is jamming and playing off old songs or introducing songs just because somebody's tuning up, they start playing another song. But I think also what I wanted to do in the book was use the songs as a way of also reminding fans and readers of stories that we can we can reapproach or re understand because we're talking outside of the Beatles, i.e., jealous guys at, at, at but it takes us back to what does John mean I'm a jealous guy. Of course that that allowed me to just remind people of when Cynthia talks about John hitting her and then when he then goes upstairs at the Liverpool Institute with Thelma Pickles and she talks about John's behaviour, which is completely unacceptable. And then of course John is really candid in his own in interviews across his life about how completely unacceptable he was in his treatment of women. He mm-hmm. was violent and he beat people up. And, and Cynthia says he did it once, never again. And so you have to accept that. And it's something I think he was always battling with. And And that element of him, the flawed, incredible songwriter, person that is revered and yet he's got this side to him that is completely unacceptable behaviour infuses itself into the lyrics he then writes and of course there's just simple jealousy as we all feel towards people that we love and their relationships with other people and then this kind of element of him as uncontrollable jealousy and whether or not had the Beatles continue to record, whether John would have got to rewriting those lyrics before he did it for that album. Of course, we don't know, do we? But it's, but it's such a beautiful melody, isn't it? So, so beautiful. And I would hazard to suggest that it, the orchestration wouldn't have been so saccharine mm. had it been a Beatles release. Who, who would have produced it? I mean, it's another big question in the book. I say to the reader, I think it's fair that each of the four Beatles, when they record their side of the album, get to choose their own producer. I think it's it's pretty obvious that Paul would have ended up with George Martin. And I, it's doubtful that John would have gone that way. We know how dismissive he, he became. And there's that brilliant, brilliant example, wasn't there? When 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 John says I would have re-recorded everything. George Martin, you know, in his really kind of hurt that beautiful voice says, even Strawberry Fields, particularly Strawberry Fields.
0: <laughs> so moving on to the, the Paul side, yes. uh, as we go from John, we must go on to Paul, as that is the way of the universe. So this is, uh, I mean, this is, a uh, look at the songs now. I've r- written them down. What a strong set of songs this yes. is. Now you, st- you start off with Come and Get It, which of course was not, officially ever recorded by the Beatles. But, I mean, the demo version of that is 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 amazing. So Lord knows what they would have done as a band on it.
1: Yeah, and, and stunning for the Abbey Road anniversary edition that, that surpasses the anthology one, doesn't it? And as good as Bad Fingers' version is, it, it, there's something special about Paul, isn't there? Doing yeah. it and singing it. And John being in the control of that for the whole hour. He does it. That's and And the precedent of the Beatles, of other bands recording Beatles songs and then the beatles doing it that's important because people might say no no Badfinger have done it you can't have that but we can you know we can go all the way back to i want to be your man as the book suggests you know the stones version and, the, and then the, and mortimer as a more modern example of on our way home and then the beatles two of us that kind of thing or albeit that the beatles had recorded it in its form You know, on uh, I think they do that on thirty first of January, don't they? That's one of the songs they do after the roof. But yeah, I mean, when I first heard "Come and Get It" in the mid nineties, I think I I didn't know it before the anthology version as as the Beatles demo. I know bootlegs, so I remember. Oh my god, I played that over and over and over again, and I and of course it's officially then a Beatles song, isn't it? Because it's on a Beatles album, so that was so exciting. That so that had to go on it, and and I remember that. And then thinking, wow, well, why didn't they do this? You nut jobs, You should have done it. So, and then there's this, there's a, another lot of songs that Paul's trying out in January '69. Hmm. Um, you asked me earlier that he put forward to the Beatles, but I, my, I would say that he doesn't put them, he doesn't put them forward to the Beatles. So another day, I don't think John ever heard another day. Okay. I think that when he's playing it over the three different days, I think it is. Two of the days, John, Paul always used to go, forgive me if you know this or listeners, you know this already, but Paul always used to spend the first up to an hour when he arrived at Twickenham playing on the piano. And he'd often uh, arrived to do that. And the famous one on the film is a Adagio for Strings. But you hear him working out another day and he can't quite get, he gets to a certain point and then he, he then goes off on a kind of a bluesy vamp, and, and on the, on a middle section, he can't resolve or where he's going, and it goes off into this completely different direction. And then he comes back on it, and then by the time he redoes it, Apple, he's got a few more words worked out, and and I think I think George is playing on it or noodling away on the background as, as I remember. Mm. But again, it's it, it, he's not playing it to suggest. Shall we do it? That's for sure, because they're too close to getting the, the, the group of songs together that they know are working at that point and performance coming any day now of some sort or other, which is at that point still in. So it's just another song they're playing up in the same way every night. They all play that mm. together. Which is exciting because you think, wow, what was it like? The Beatles all playing every night. But Paul hasn't worked out where to go with the song yet. It's, it's largely unwritten, not largely unwritten, but the sections that aren't certain, but he's just playing. And that leads into another song that I suggest. I don't say it would have made it, but I say it's a, it's a possibility in the same way as Oh My Love could have been a possibility, is it for John? There's this, do you know the song There You Go, Eddie? You oh
0: yeah, fantastic song! Yeah, what a great song that is! Yeah,
1: yeah, and so Paul plays that, and then John starts chipping in with silly names, and they 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 all start saying silly names instead of Eddie. So uh, John starts going, uh, "Nigel, there you go, Nigel. Or there you go," and then jo- Paul sings, "There you go, Mimi. Perhaps aren't Mimi. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming he, he means that." Yeah. So there's all lots of different things, but that that's a beautiful melody. And I really hope that's on what when they re-release. When they re-release whatever's coming from Apple li- later in the year. I hope that's on it because that, yeah. that could have been great. Um, and then there's nine seconds of junk. Have you heard that?
0: I, I, th- I might have done. Obviously the, the Isha demo is predates yeah. that a bit. Um,
1: then it, there's nine seconds okay. of John and Paul chipping in French words. Paul sings Epsilon which is the fifth letter of the Greek alphabet and uh and at the time i was hearing all these tapes there was a french person staying at our house and i was trying to get her to translate what what john and paul were singing and she said i can't make sense of it and it's partly because they're mucking around and the audio is not great and they're and they're singing but she said i don't think it makes up real but anyway in the book I, i make an attempt at the translation but again it's just the fact that john and paul this brief moment we're singing jump together how exciting and it's such a the best version that's probably um mtv unplugged wouldn't you say oh lovely
0: version yeah cracking
1: version yeah yeah
0: yeah. you also select backseat of my car (sighs) i mean what a i mean rams had this huge turnaround in critical opinion in the last what you know 10 15 years i mean a song like that backseat of my car i mean what a it's almost like a history of rock and roll in, in one song. You know, it's just got so much drama and yeah. it, it, it's dripping with 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 drama and, and uh, intrigue almost. Yes. Uh, it would have been great to see what the Beatles would have made of that.
1: And again, another song that Paul was noodling and playing around with, uh, Twickenham. And so you hear him, and that's really exciting. So another one that maybe could have been, yeah, I mean, the, the phenomenal moment in that song is when it breaks down to nothing. And Paul let's rip with that scream and you just go yeah! he's being macker of the Beatles that's what we're loving for that scream that goes all the way back to I'm down or long till Sally and uh you know and uh, you know to Skelter the, the thing that you want the solo albums to to be like you always wish I'd oh, just be more Beatles and there he is doing the Wah! yes yes but that song slightly ram I, I structurally, it feels like there's a re- repetition, maybe one too many times. It doesn't feel as if it's got that succinctness that you when you never question the structure of a Beatles song, dear, you, ever. You mm. know, I'd be, I mean, I'd really have to think hard and be super critical to to think of a passage in a Beatles song where you go, really, could they? Why is that in it? Or it's a bit long in it. You just don't. I mean, it's perfection isn't it but in solar records that beautiful thing that the four of them had that they could all arrange together and they all do they definitely all do it as a four it's not one two although paul is definitely the genius to my mind of how those arrangements work and again that month in in january 69 proves that without a doubt that he's the one that can orchestrate it more than anybody else but then you know you go to something like i me mine and when they haven't got the middle eight section it's ringo that does the the three four on the right and then that suggests something that george and paul both play off and that comes from ringo but yeah i mean back and makai it'd be that being, cons- yeah, it has to be on it. It has to be on it, it given. A, and, and of course, the other thing I say in the book that this is I think this is the hardest thing of all in the in, when you read the book is somehow you as the reader have got to strip yourself of the version that, you know, mm-hmm. and you can't listen to another day and go, oh, well, it's a bit soft or it's this or that. You've got to you've got to somehow. Imagine it back to just an acoustic guitar and a voice or a piano and a voice and Paul going, what about this, John? And that kind of thing and what they would have done. And it wouldn't be what. But our whole lives are invested in in the time and place we heard those versions, the arrangements we know. And I'm saying, strip it. Imagine it all being reconfigured. And what would we have then?
0: So you mentioned Army Mind there. So let's move on to the the George side. Um, Now, the famous thing about George at this time was he had an awful lot of songs that that he'd built up. In fact, he had a double and even a triple album's worth of songs that would appear on All Things Must Pass. Uh, Tell us a little bit about about these choices. I mean, the ones that really stands out for me. I mean, All Things Must Pass itself is an interesting song. I mean, number one, it's what an amazing, wise piece of music All Things Must Pass is, I mean, it's incredible. And of course, we know, and as I'm sure you'll tell us about, the Beatles, they couldn't quite get this right, could they?
1: I don't know if I would phrase it like that. I mean, of the tapes that I heard, this is the one song that really blew my head off. You're talking about a song that they rehearsed over several days together, over many, many, many hours. So you can, I don't know how many hours if you put it all together, but I, I would hazard a guess six, five, four, five, six hours. The Beatles played All Things Must Pass. And it ends up with three part harmonies on the chorus. John, Paul, George, that in itself. Oh, my God. The three of them singing All Things Must Pass. That's a mind bender for you know. And then Paul really trying to help and understand George's structure and trying to work out how the different sections go, how it could be different. Paul suggesting to John, "Why don't you sing this bit? I'll sing that." Then, oh, then there's a passage over the verse, over the verses, where George is singing. That Paul tries out the chorus melody over the verse just to see if that works, and then it, it, it's not fully formed. You know, in the, you know, in the way that when um, G- George in February, 69, sings something and he's got all the additional sections and he hasn't quite honed it yet. It's a bit like that. These these kind of things that aren't quite working and you can begin to feel and hear literally how Paul kind of begins to help form the song. I mean, the greatest example of this, which is the song that utterly blew my mind, is Don't Let Me Down, which John comes in with only two chords. And a quite kind of a flattish melody. And it's not that Paul changes the, me- the melody, it's just that the way Paul naturally sings, he makes it melodic. So he starts putting inflections onto the melody. And then John, you hear kind of singing back what he's obviously imbibed from Paul. And so he starts bending round to Paul's melody, and then they begin off each other. And rather than one, telling the other what to do they just there's a there's a kind of a stretching between them and that's one of the most magical things i've ever heard and it and it doesn't ah that it's just so beautiful to hear and then you so you hear that with all things must pass and then you hear how ringo invests his and and i always thought i always thought that either John or one of the Beatles told or suggested to to Ringo what patterns to play, and perhaps they did on earlier albums. I don't know, because there's there's scant evidence to suggest that, but I've often heard it referred to. But you don't hear that very much in this period of time. And and, and Ringo has a lot of incredible and original ideas. And, of course, when Paul goes on to the drums, as we've known him to on previous records, and as we hear him say on Ballad of John, Paul, Paul can't quite carry off the fill, in the, uh, despite him being a good drummer. You know, the way that Ringo puts a fill on, and so when you've heard him putting a fill on something like All Things Must Pass, you just go, oh, why didn't you do that, you know, a year later? So that had, and, then, and then also, as a final track, which I put it at the very end of this double album, what a way. What a way to end. All things must pass. I mean, is that as good as the end? You know, maybe not, but
0: nearly, nearly. nearly, Do you
1: reckon? Do you reckon? Yeah, I think
0: think so. I mean, another interesting one for me on your list. So, Not Guilty is on there. So, you think they would have, again, a song that they did almost 100 takes of during the the White That's
1: played up, isn't it, Joe? You know, because it's not a big deal, really. And and as Mark Lewison rightly points out, 30 plus of those are just getting rhythm and then some of them aren't complete and then it's joined together. And any band that's worked in the studio, you can rack up takes very, very quickly and very easily. The implication could be that they were really struggling. But when you listen to the versions that we now can hear and have been out to hear since the first anthology and all the bootlegs before, it's pretty close, isn't it? As a re- And it's a great song, I think. A really, really great song. And far surpasses George's version later on when he's got the Fender Rhodes on it. You know, that's not great, is it?
0: But I do think that Not Guilty is a stronger song, certainly yeah. than, than Piggies, maybe than, than Savoy Truffle. It's and I think stronger it's, than
1: Revolution 9 or "Wild Honey Pie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So it's interesting that it didn't end up on there, really.
1: No, it isn't. You know, maybe it's not quite—I don't know—by their standards, not quite right. You know, was it tricky to get that complicated um, key change? But you know, it didn't. They—they it, they got through the key changes on um, "We Can Work It Out," and that was George's suggestion. And there's other examples where they've always been mar- been able to marry really weird time signature changes. Sorry, and and half the time, as a listener, you're not even an aw- aware that they're doing these bonkers time signature changes. That's the brilliance of them. They can make something sound simple where there's incredible artistry behind what they do. And I do think that that's the unique chemical balance of those four. And that's what would make songs that we might not necessarily look to on the solo albums that could have been utterly transformed had they done them, for sure.
0: My Sweet Lord is on there. That's I mean, that's a huge... What a beautiful song that is. Almost a religious experience, my sweet Lord, I was finding.
1: Well, and it is, isn't it? If you could cause religious, yeah, for sure. And and also, you know, the, I think there's probably many fans that, that don't like the production of the original George album. And and there's certainly outtakes that you can hear and versions that George committed to tape. You know, something, say, for example, like Wawa, where it's just him, just him and a guitar. And then you hear it stripped back. And then when you hear it like that, you go, oh, it could be anything, couldn't it? And and the same, you know, there's lots of examples of that. So, but all things must pass. I mean, just in the, re- I mean, it's difficult because it's the success that that, had, that song had on both sides of the Atlantic was utterly phenomenal, wasn't it? Mm. But again, I use the book as an example, as, as an excuse to also talk about the, the court case around it. And then you get into that absurd situation where you can, you know I conjure up those images of them in the courtroom or george in the courtroom and they've got like a, a plain white paper and they go motif a says you know you've used these calls, A A D and a dna motif b you've used g c and whatever and it's just like reducing music to to a school blackboard essentially it's just like shut up you know if he nicked it, he didn't nick it you know it, it's, he didn't do it consciously. Uh, like he says if he knew he was doing it he wouldn't have done it but had the Beatles done it they were hot on going like like, like they did to ringo all the time you just really written really little richard or whoever you know or even in again i'm sorry to bang on about it but there's there's examples in twicken and an apple where they are constantly referencing saying well that's a bit like that or you know or george saying to uh paul or your beards become a bit like Levon Helm <laughs> who he doesn't know what he looks like but they're even they're, they can't even cover somebody's beard
0: <laughs> I think I think they did have an incredible you know all all, all four of them really but they all had an incredible musical knowledge you know the the passion and the love that they had those images that we have of you know John and Paul in particular going through a Liverpool record shop you know Brian's or otherwise and you know the, the passion of finding a record and learning the B side to it and all that yeah. kind of stuff. They they had a h- huge depth of musical knowledge.
1: Yeah, and, and speaking of someone that used to be in a band, I, I think that, that just seems entirely natural to me. He's like, and even if you're not in a band, if you love music, then you always, I don't know, maybe that isn't the case, because why did beatle Rarities get released? Did that get released in the early 80s, you know? 82. Uh, 82. And there's that chat on the back saying we all know the million sellers. But perhaps you don't know these. And I, I always thought, well, that's odd. Why would you not know Rain? I mean, it's one of the greatest songs ever made, ever. And so the idea that you wouldn't have flipped over Paperback Writer, that seems odd to me, but maybe because you were stacking them on your dance set in the 60s, that by the time you couldn't, you literally couldn't flip it because you got six falling on top of it. You know, maybe that was the reason. I mean, the amount of songs that we were always covering and playing to one another, but all bands are like that. And all I, I think most, Fans of music are like that. You 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 cherish the unknowns and the B sides.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's move on to Ringo. We we <laughs> can't we can't forget Ringo. And listening to to these songs that you suggested, yeah. and I thought, what a great set of songs these are. I mean, Ringo's solo career, obviously, early part of his solo career. I hasten to add, was really successful. Yeah. You know, he had yeah. some, he had a lot of goodwill around him initially. Uh, and he selected some really, really interesting songs. So let's let's talk about this. I'm in particularly looking forward to talking about some of these. It don't come easy. What a great, a great song. George obviously heavily involved in the the writing apparently yeah. of of that. What was it about about that that made you go for that one?
1: Well, I started the chapter and writing right? some forgotten dreams what to do with ringo <laughs> you know because you kind of think how are we going to get six songs and like you say i was blown away but i suddenly thought actually when you start putting the possibilities together you got a really really exciting side and i i quickly got they all wrote for ringo that was generally the thing wasn't it and then he he could maybe contribute one or two so when you so the idea of what would what would they george had already written a it don't come easy. So that was an obvious one. And, and we know we've got Ringo's recorded version, but we've also got the, the version that George did mm. with the Harry Krishnas in the chorus. But it's sensational, isn't it? That riff over th- the three opening chords that through the chords, George has constructed the riff as it started as a song, you've you got to pay your dues. I think he, he offered it to. Bad finger first, but they turned it down because they'd already done come and get it. So they were, you know, rightfully probably measuring themselves against, well, how many songs do we do of the fabs? But they probably were they wrong not to do it. And, and, and Ringo Ringo's vocal on it is great. And it, when it, given the right kind of song in the right key, he can really pull off a great song. But the guitar is the guitars that drive this. And then, yeah, so that was an obvious choice to me. Another one was I'm the Greatest, which is there's um, great stories behind that, which is it's Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay's phrase because he recorded an album called I'm the Greatest when he did the poetry album. Then they meet him just several months later. And what I like about that is then they then leave the, the meeting with Cassius Clay just before the big fight with Sonny Liston to go back to England to do Hard Day's Night jump forward six years and John Lennon watches a Hard Day's Night on TV starts reminiscing in his head because he's seen what they were like and starts with this idea when I was a little boy back in Liverpool Starts bl- working out this idea in 1970. So therefore legitimate, just about, just about maybe for, for this new Beatles album. Has a go at it quite early on, tries to refine it, puts it back in a, in a box. Eventually, you know, comes to 73. And then there's that incredible 20 minutes of audio that you can find on YouTube where he's in the studio with Ringo trying to lay, he, John's at the piano and he's trying to lay down demo version for him. Klaus Foreman's on bass. I think this is the one that George phones up, isn't it? Is that the one where he gets yeah, yeah, on the yeah, phone? Yeah, yeah. And well, wow. but just hearing John really precisely trying to get the the right tempo, the right delivery, in the same way as they used to do in the Beatles, where they would put, offer the guide vocal. I think on Good Night there's a guide, isn't there? That mm-hmm. then that then Ringo sings over so he knows how to deliver it. And Ringo sings it great. And of course because it's got that john says they would kill me if i wrote a song called i'm the greatest give it ringo and it's suddenly great isn't it in the same way and i think this is where i was beginning to get ideas from that paul wrote you're going to carry that weight was an idea for ringo and and so he would come up with all these verse ideas and then you'd have like the comedy line boy you're going to carry that weight and and he says Ringo can sing that one and then of course it becomes something else by the time of Abbey Road and something you think no way Ringo couldn't sing that but yet his voice is really loud in the mix isn't it on on Abbey Road so so that had to be on it and then you you know there's things like Coochie Coochie that's a brilliant song isn't it really an early 1970 you know.
0: Well I was going to say uh, what's interesting for me is that you go for Suicide uh, which I think is a really clever and uh, really fun choice. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: It was what's Paul's contribution going to be? And of course, Paul had contributed to the arrangements for the first couple of Ringo solo albums. But Suicide, again, another Lennon and McCartney rehearsed song uh, where there's that bit of Twickenham where Paul st- starts singing it and then John joins in. And, uh, and you think, wow, wow, listen to John. They're, again, that magic of the two of them. And, they, and then you trace back the history of that song and John with the whole Sinatra, you know, trying to write in that style way, way back when he used to do it as a party song in the 50s. And then you jump forward and they're all flirting. Each uh, uh, John, George and Paul are flirting with writing for Sinatra. And, and, and there's all various stories about that and, and, and addresses to Sinatra and the famous story of Paul offering it to Frank and Frank thinks he's, you know, taking the mickey. But I just thought, you know, Paul obviously wants, doesn't know what to do with the song when he does, when he does. I mean, McCartney's essentially a demos album, isn't it? If, if, if you look at the how the line of 69 to 70 is working, Paul's recording demos, he's not really, I don't think, setting out to record his first solo album and and the album comes across as demos. I mean who puts on a drum track for heaven's sake? You know, that is not a solo record. I
0: I think that's absolutely right. The only two really that stand out as not being demos are Every Night and Maybe I'm Amazed, yeah. which I think came later on in the recording and yes. I think that's him saying, "Hang on a minute. John's doing Instant Karma. I need to really produced for this record just to just to give it some I mean I think it's got a lot of charm as a record now. Um I don't I think it makes a lot more sense now than it did in 1970. I think now it's quite fun lo-fi apart from maybe I'm amazed kind of collection of songs. But I think at the time, yeah it it might have seen a little bit I mean things like Kareena Corey, not yeah gonna be in anyone's top ten. Um, but yeah, you're right. I, I think that that is quite quite demo-like um, a lot of the songs yeah, on, and, on and, the right. and
1: also, also, you know, there's, there's an interview, I think George does, where he says Paul's doing his album, you know, and uh, and uh, John's doing some stuff. And in his mind, they're just doing some stuff before they get it back together again. And he, I think that interview's in March 1970. So even then, he thinks it's going to happen. And I think there's and there's another one I found as well, and I'm pretty certain this is in the book, that John talks about that he thinks they'll probably even come back together. You know, so even though he's talked about divorce privately in September, and they've all mentioned divorce, Paul talks about divorce in in January 69, George mentions divorce fairly flippantly. Famously, Paul says it's over for Life magazine in 69 when everybody ignores it. So yeah, back to suicide. Uh, again, I put that. Uh, where does where did I put suicide? No, that's I, the final track. Yeah, or if it had been a double album and they each had one side, then the last side of side four is suicide. And I thought that was just a hilarious idea that I kind of felt to me hilarious in a Beatles comedy way that mm-hmm. you end up your career with the song suicide, <laughs> you know. And this, but it's a great song, and I, and I draw on paul's version for one hand clapping right and so you hear it realized in its in its extended form where paul probably knew it was going when he did that the brief excerpt on the mccartney album it's not labeled is it it's just hot as no. no. glasses isn't it um where i don't know where he's at with the song at that point but yeah with the benefit of hindsight then you know what it was and that and it just it just feels like Ringo doesn't it he's got that old Ringo could carry off a 30s tune as we know from that solo album so it just felt not 30s a bit too early there so
0: to kind of tie up a little bit of our our conversation Daniel I'd like to I mean the whole book the genius of the book is the is the fun kind of speculation of it so I thought we could end with a little bit of of speculation hopefully in our (laughs) conversation Uh, so you mentioned just then about this this idea of them staying together a question that many of us have always wondered uh, how close do you think they came to to working together in that, that 10 years between 1917, 1980. And would that have been a good idea, do you think?
1: I mean, the ultimate of this uh, this fun game, would they, wouldn't they? Is that they answered it them, well, three of them answered it themselves with Free as a Bird and and Real Love. They played the game. What would it be like if we were still the Beatles? And so they took the tapes from and, and did it. And so that's the, the greatest blessing of the loss, isn't it? You know, we as fans are all going a bit mental and being super kind of uh, bonkers by playing it and going ah, and getting obsessed about it. Then they actually did it. But we don't know if John would have done it. And then, of course, they play the fantasy, don't they? That if, that's the critical word always, if we'd done it our way, if Paul had had his, if his letter that he wrote back to Spectre signing off with and don't ever do it again. If those changes that he'd recommended, this perhaps would have been that version. Some you know, so they play the if game. And I think we always played the if game. You know, I always, I often think one of the first records I bought as a kid was Take It Away. You know, that fabulous track of Paul's.
0: Great song from Tag of War, yes. yeah.
1: Yeah, love that song. But do you remember what's the, what the picture is on the flip of the seven inch single? his cup of tea isn't he, on the front
0: uh, yeah and, and a guitar under his arm and a cup of tea on the front that's right yeah and on the, the, back-, on the
1: back is a picture of george martin and ringo because they're on, on the record and i said to myself why is paul doing that and it's because as fans you always want paul to be with our friends and, our, and our, back to the top of the conversation our friends in Beatle land are all the Beatles and George Martin and you, you, imagine them all being mates forever. Well, he's playing to that because he's going, look, here's Ringo. Here's George Martin. You know that that's the Beatles and I'm giving you a little nod, even though I'm solo Paul. And it's, and I, I think in my head as a 10 year old, nine year old, I think something I read that into that. Go, oh, look, Paul's with them still. They're still friends and it, but I didn't compute perhaps what why Paul had chosen to do that until later, but it's just innocent because they're there. Linda took a photo. It's as innocent as that as that. But at the same time, it's a nod to the Beatles. And they were always, always looking. All of them were, you know, they were always putting nods in or, uh, you know, when when John on um, sometime in New York City, he's got pictures of a, a picture of George on the album, hasn't he, uh, mm-hmm. in, when you open up the plane in 69 when they were Beatles. If you're trying to get away from your past as they were often trying to claim they were the images weren't always backing that up and but and, and then of course you know we get into fantasy land when you hear that Paul went to call for John at the Dakota and they got the guitars out and you don't you just want to know what went on there and then there's another fantasy of Bangladesh. Where uh, where Yoko told the whole story, where she says that George is on the phone saying, "Will you do it?" And then George, is, John's getting a bit mad uh, on the phone to George and Ring and Yoko is trying to persuade John to go down. Why not go down? And he's going no because it'll become and there's so and there's this possibility because Ringa's turned up and then John might turn up and you know there's all the times these ifs and. I'll tell you what, Joe. I mean, talking to you for this last hour, I've like, re- I rarely get to go bonkers on Beatles chat, and you've made re- kind of reminded myself of what a partner used to be like as a kid or in a twenty-year-old. You just can't wait to meet a Beatles fan and just talk Beatles nonsense for an hour. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I thank you for that.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, I think that's a <laughs> that's a really great way to to end that conversation. So, the book is likes and forgotten dream. What if the Beatles hadn't split up? Uh, Daniel, Rachel, thanks so much for your time.
1: Oh, brilliant. Thanks, Jim.